If you would, open your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 11. We will focus on verses 17 through 34. First Corinthians 11, 17 through 34. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you might be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you Eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For everyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give directions when I come. Let's pray to the Lord together. Father, we thank you for this text. We are eager to learn. I pray that you would give us a spirit of eagerness uh, to yield to what you have for us in this text, even as we examine it 2,000 years after it was written thereabouts. And so I pray that you would give us insight and that you would stir our affections, that you would grant us imagination and creativity that we might press in further to what you have for us in the Lord's Supper. And at the same time, I pray that you would cause us to be grateful that even if we lack the ideal in certain ways, that we can yet still experience the blessing that the Lord's Supper is. And if you would, right now, pray for yourself that the Lord would grant you understanding and focus and that we would, as a church, yield to His Word.
And if you would also pray for me, that I would have the right posture of heart, frame of mind, and words that would help. Father, we do love you and trust you. I pray that you would do with this time as you will for your glory and the fame of your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This sermon falls in line with what has become now a series, a series of sermons that I've titled Life Together. And as a church, the one another commands are very important to us. They should be important to every church and every believer, but especially for us, our new, our, our covenant, our church covenant, the promises that we ask every member to make to each other are built around the one another commands. There is a big difference between what is acceptable cultural Christianity and what the richly biblical ideal is. The law of Christ is fulfilled in close, intimate community with brothers and sisters. There may be some in this room already who hear me say that, like, wow, we're jumping in this pretty quick and pretty strong. Uh, You might not like hearing that. That the law of Christ is fulfilled in close, intimate community with brothers and sisters. Yet it is. And so if you don't like that, the encouragement is to trust the Lord that He knows better for you than you do. So even if something hits you wrong or if you don't like how something sounds, trust that because this is God's design and from His wisdom, it is better for you and it is good for you. He loves you and He cares about your happiness more than you ever have. So as we live life together, we need to be reminded of truths certain truths that aren't necessarily any more true than other truths that we find in the Bible, but that are what I have called uh, upstream significance. They have an upstream significance for the people of God and our health together. There are many truths in the Bible that are this way. And this is why we have a statement of faith that is shorter than the whole Bible. What do you believe? Obviously the whole Bible, but here are the truths in a few pages that we are saying as a church really matter a ton to who we are for the sake of our unity together as a family. But we're not teaching a series through the statement of faith. This series, this Life Together series, is not to put too fine a point on it. It is me as your pastor looking out to our family and saying, here are some truths that we need to be reminded of for our progress and for our health. And we will be doing this, this, we've done three so far, this is technically part three of the Life Together series, there will be five more. Today, we're looking at the Lord's Supper. More specifically, how the Lord's Supper binds us together in life and gives us a way to obey basically all the one another commands. That's a huge statement. And the Lord's Supper is so, so many things. And when a preacher approaches a text like this, there's a lot of excitement. This is a rich text. But even more so for me as a pastor, there is just so much here I want to say. But if you are following along in the notes and the handout, you can see that we're going to try to keep it surface level in terms of the exposition. We'll talk a lot about the theology of the Lord's Supper, of course. 
But what I'm most, what I'm most interested in today is this. What I will call the community transforming power of celebrating the supper in a richly biblical way. The community transforming power of celebrating the Lord's Supper in a richly biblical way. Some of this, if you've been through the new members class in the last year or so, might be somewhat review, but this is the first chance I've really had to explain this all in full from the pulpit for all of us as the church. So we're going to jump right in, and I believe the structure of this passage flows in order. This first, the first three verses, verses 17 through 19, I believe we could say, make this point that the integrity and health of the church depend on unity. The integrity and the health of the church depend on unity. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. The structure of 1 Corinthians follows like this. There are several different points that the Apostle Paul is instructing the Corinthians on. Because it is evident that they sent him a letter asking questions. And Paul responds saying, yes, you're right here in some areas, but you need to also consider this. And so he's, he's acknowledging what they got right and then saying, but you also need to think about this as well, and moderating their position. D.A. Carson notes, Paul had something to commend, or at least grant, in every other case of every specific issue that he addresses in this letter, except this one, the Lord's Supper. It is all negative. He has nothing good to say to them. And I'm so grateful for this text. We don't have another place in Scripture where the taking of the Lord's Supper is given to us in, in a lot of detail. And so because of the Corinthian church's sin and they're not getting anything right, the church for all time now has this treasure of a text. So God is sovereign even in our sin, even in our sin as a church. But God used that in the Corinthian church for our good. But for now, just imagine getting this letter. Seeing that both and approach, yeah, yeah, you got this right, you have this right, but also consider this. And, and that would have been, okay, okay, we got some things going right. Paul isn't just dropping the hammer. And now the hammer drops. I have nothing good to say about you. This is the ultimate you're doing it wrong moment in the Bible. So much so, that he even says that because they are messing up the Lord's Supper, and that's key, keep that connection central, because they're messing up the Lord's Supper, their gatherings do more harm than good. Just as an aside, it's fascinating to consider just how pro-church Paul really is. He says to the Corinthian church, when you gather together, it does more harm than good, but he never even once indicates that they should stop gathering. Are we that pro-church? So why is Paul so critical? What makes matters so bad that their gatherings do more harm than good? Well, first, he gives the first reason, there are divisions in the church. 
What we need to be careful about with this text is not to take this word necessary to mean something that Paul doesn't mean. I've actually heard a seminary professor teach it this way. See, divisions are necessary, so we should be just completely fine with divisions in the church. That would mean that every church, when they gathered, did more harm than good, if you just followed the logic out. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you, Corinthian congregation, there are clearly some of you that are not genuine, so it's now obvious or necessary, it's, it's, it's unavoidable that there would be divisions, because there are some genuine people in your midst, and there are some very ungenuine people, if that's a construction that you'll accept, in your congregation. So it's necessary, it's unavoidable, he's saying, because of the state of things in the church. Paul, here, when he says this, that talking about the problem of divisions and factions, he's not even speaking directly about the Lord's Supper yet. He addresses a more fundamental concern. Your gathering, our services, yes, even our attempts to be God-honoring in our liturgy and to be well-organized and eliminate distractions and, and have less mic issues, All of that is invalidated in its spiritual value if there are divisions in the church. If there are factions in the church. It does more harm than good. Can you see the seriousness of this? And why I speak against cliques and segregation and partiality so much? An application question. What divisions exist in the fabric of the community of our church? What are the ones that we're just happy if they go on unchecked because we actually like them? So, concluding this point, right? the, the main first point is that the health, the integrity and the health of the church depend on unity. The point is this, it's not an oversimplification to say that if you want to strengthen churches and to improve the health of the churches, the number one apostolically endorsed method is to eliminate divisions. So, Paul said in the first place, so that's, that's what first makes this a problem. What's the second one? Then he goes into verse 20 through 22. The legitimacy of the supper depends on unity and Humility. The legitimacy of the supper depends on unity and humility. Verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No. I will not. So this is actually a corollary of the first concern that the Apostle Paul has. This is, this is a uh, symptom, if you will. The way they take the supper is flowing out of the fact that there are divisions in the church foundationally. And that disunity or those divisions are manifesting in the way that they take the supper. This is a startling symptom because he says, Because there's disunity in the way you take it, it actually becomes something else. It's no longer the Lord's Supper. It's not only are our gatherings made to be where they're more harm than good, but even the Supper is then 
robbed of its identity. It's no longer the supper. It becomes something else altogether. It's just, it's just a cracker and some juice. You can say all the right things. You can pray all the right things. You can have the right frame of mind in yourself. You can have the right theology of the Lord's Supper. You can have a reverent posture. But if there are divisions and disunity, then all of that can be true, and it's not the Lord's Supper that you take. So, how is this disunity manifesting or showing up in the Corinthian congregation when they took the supper? In summary, if I were to summarize their behavior, I would say this. They were not thinking of one another. They were not preferring one another. They were not being kind. And I know it's a bad word, but they weren't being nice to each other. The historical context of this does factor in a little bit. I won't spend too much time here, but what was happening, this is from a few different scholars, um, there were a lot of poor people (laughs) in the first century church. And a lot of the first Christians were slaves. And the Romans worked on a 10-day work week without a real weekend. And so when a church got together in the first century with Jews who were on a seven-day calendar and wealthy Jews and Greeks who could show up maybe before the sun went down when the, when the household servants could finally come after they had put their master's house into order, they showed up and the more wealthy people of that church had already gone ahead and eaten the whole meal. And by so doing, they despised those who had nothing. They humiliated those who had nothing. The Lord's Supper, then, is to be a sacred feast where there is no seat of dishonor and no person is dishonored. It's all together and equal. There are a few theological implications or a rootedness of this connection between unity and equality. We are all standing before the Lord on equal footing. We're all one in Christ. So to go ahead with one's own meal, if you were one of the more wealthy Corinthians, right, not on your master's clock, so to speak, before you could come to the supper, to go ahead, to cut in line, as it were, would be to communicate to those who had to show up later because of their work schedule that they didn't matter as much. It would be to say that because of my economic status or or my ethnicity, I matter more in the household of God than you do. This would be the same problem of going off and having one's own meal, like to, to, to separate oneself from what everyone else was doing. This actually, the overtones of this are, are there in the church at Antioch when Peter goes off and enjoys his meal with the other Jews and just enjoys their kosher meal together. This is what's going on. We're going to go over here and have our special meal, just us, and you, the rest of your church, you go over there, you have the meal with you. It indicates division. That there's some separation. But we are all one. There's no longer Jew nor Greek or slave nor free or male nor female. We're all in Christ together, brothers and sisters, co-heirs with Christ Himself. 
So a few observations then, as we're, we're walking through this and trying to reverse engineer. Paul said this, so what does that mean about what his expectations for taking the Lord's Supper really are for the church? Number one, it is supposed to be part of a real meal. It's supposed to be part of a real meal. That's a pretty significant statement, and I understand it, but I think it'll be supported. This is how the first century church enjoyed it. The solution is not to minimize the bare essentials right, of the cup and the bread. But at the same time, I want you to see why I call what we do in this room, and it may sound funny to you, a sacred appetizer. Right? Because it is part of the shared meal, the shared feast that we share together as the people of God. I'm looking forward to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And so as we celebrate the Lord's table together, if it is to be a good preview, it should be part of a full meal. It doesn't invalidate this, this more memorial type way that we enjoy the supper at all. But it does give us an arrow or a trajectory to follow. And there are many logistical and pastoral challenges of trying to make this work. And I welcome those. Because that is, in many ways, what the pastoral agenda is. To increase the quality, the sacredness, and the joy available to us all in our shared sacred feasts. It's a vision for what it means to be a church. Secondly, it is supposed to be a communal feast. If you've read the Old Testament, you hear over and over and over, God required that all His people, at least all the males, should appear before Him at the place where He chose to set His name and celebrate before God together. So, when you're not here, when people belonging to our congregation aren't here to do this together, we are at a loss. We, we lack because they're not a part of us. It is, it is a communal feast. It's not just each of us doing our own thing together in the same space. I worked for, I guess it was uh, about a year and a half at a fine dining Mexican restaurant in Fort Worth. And we would have large parties come in and ask to sit at one table. And it would always be a disruption of our whole restaurant for like a 20-person table to insist on sitting at one table. But if you've ever been to a place where you were forced to split up, and half of your group is over here and half of your group is over there, or, or we got 10 people inside and, and 15 people outside, it detracts from the value, the communal aspect of that gathering. And so families were insistent. No, it's got to be one table. So we get this in so many other aspects of our life. We know that to have part of us over there and some of us over here detracts from the quality of this communal aspect of this feast that we share together. And at the wedding supper of the Lamb, I don't know how it's going to all work, but we're going to be at the table of the King Thirdly, it is supposed to be equalized. Equalized in the sense that there's no needy person among us. 
Right? These are the overtones also at place in Acts chapters 2 and 4. When Luke summarizes the giving nature of their community, they were doing the New Testament implications of all these Old Testament commands. Make sure the Levite has something to celebrate with you as well, because he has no inheritance like you do in the land. So when you come together to celebrate all these feasts that I've commanded you to do, make sure that there's no one who lacks anything in order to celebrate this feast. And that's what was happening in Acts. So the church understood that when we come together, there's going to be no needy person among us. We're all going to enjoy the Lord and His table and this supper together. That was a, that in, in some way, and I would say probably the primary way, that was the motivation behind all of their generosity. To make sure that their shared feasts were wonderful and together and done up big in a way that everyone could enjoy. So immediate application here for us. It gives an answer to the why behind a lot of what we try to do. I've been working, as I've been saying for a long time, to re-collide, to merge again the spheres of the sacred and the celebratory. God, in His commands to Israel, had these spheres together perfectly. If you're just reading the description of all their feasts, this is what they did. The sacred and the celebratory were together. And somewhere along the way... We lost it. And so we have the sacred over here, and then we have the celebratory somewhere else. And the Lord's Supper gives us a vision for recolliding those spheres. Also, we see the gift of the Lord's Supper. Paul recounts the, the account of Luke. If you're familiar with the Lord's Supper snippets in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you know that this is a lifting from Luke's account. And Luke and Paul traveled together, so it is probably from Luke that he got this, at least the specific details, verses 23 through 25. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. In addition to everything else that the Lord's Supper is, and it is so, so many things, it is a gift. Sometimes, the way we relate to the Lord's Supper is as obligation. Well, He told us to do it. We've got to remember Him. So let's put it all together and like have the right frame of mind. Like, all right, we did it this Sunday, right? So we don't feel in violation of His commands. But it's a gift. And hopefully you can see as we try to re-merge the spheres of the sacred and the celebratory, it is a good gift. It is a sacred feast that we get to share together because we're in this new covenant, in His blood, and we get to rejoice before our God together. It's a gift. It's not our idea. It's not something we planned or thought up. It is a divine creation. A gift given to you and me as the people of God. And He gives this gift to us on the night when He was betrayed. It's a side note. It doesn't really relate to the main trajectory of this message, but He gives us this precious gift of the supper on the night when He was betrayed. Compare that to how we usually act when things don't go our way. 
The gospel is seen clearly in the elements of the Lord's Supper, of course. Jesus says, this bread is my body given for you. This blood is the new covenant in my blood. And this is the point of the gospel, that Christ's body had to be broken for you. As the substitute for your sins, when God laid all our guilt and sin and shame on Him and drank that cup of wrath, well mixed, that's in the hand of the Father, His body had to be broken. His blood had to be shed. Somebody's got to die. And Christ died for you. That's what we celebrate. That's what we remember, in part, in taking the supper. But I want you to notice a few words. He says remembrance. Do this in remembrance. It reminds us of the Lord Himself, of course. It points the arrow back. I've said it before from this setting, but it is so important to think about this, that when we consider what faith is, the operative word of faith is remember. Remember what God has done. Remember what He has promised. And so when we take the supper, it is, it is putting faith to practice. Remember the Lord. But it's interesting to me that Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me before He dies. Before His body is broken. Before His blood is shed. So I think this means that what we remember is not just the moment where He died and His body was broken and His blood was shed, but we remember all of it. We remember Him. We remember His life, His ministry, His words, His death, burial, and resurrection, and glorification. When we take the bread, this represents all of Christ. When we take His blood, this represents all His work. The supper then is not merely a commemoration of His death, but a commemoration of the entire Christ event, as the theologians call it. From even before the incarnation and then all the way to glory. He says, this bread is My body which is for you, or broken for you, some Manuscripts say. The theme of commemoration then draws us and our thoughts to the body, the physical body of the Lord Jesus. And just understanding why He had to have a physical body will add so much more significance to our taking of the bread. He took on our nature in the flesh so that He could be a proper substitute. He endured the same trials and limitations and temptations that we do in the flesh so that He could be an empathetic high priest. He lived the perfect life in the flesh so that He could be our example. Not as the God who commands us from heaven, do this and do this, but here I will lead you in the way showing what holiness looks like as a person in the flesh. He's the perfect example. He shows us perfectly what it means for us as humans to worship God. And so many more. This bread represents His body. So much of the Christian's life and our hope finds its realization in the physical body of the Lord Jesus. And He says, this cup is the new covenant in My blood. And here, I want you to understand, this is so important. This signals that this is not merely symbolism at play in the cup. 
there are covenantal implications. It's not merely a commemoration of the shedding of His blood. It's the real thing. I want to say, just a side note about the insistence on wine. Some theologians and teachers nowadays say, well, it has to be wine, it has to be wine. It's interesting, when you look at the text of all the accounts of the Lord's Supper, they just say cup over and over and over. And probably the reason why is that some churches couldn't afford giving wine to everybody. And they would dilute it with water anyway. The symbolism in the elements is what's important, not an insistence on a particular form. But that's a side note. I want to get back to this idea of covenant, a new covenant in my blood. There are spiritual and promissory implications in taking the bread and the cup. When you take the bread, and especially the cup, you are claiming that you are in the covenant. One with Christ. And if you or your child aren't doing that in taking the bread or the cup, then you shouldn't take it. This is what we talk about in believer's baptism and then the Lord's Supper, that only those who are saying, yes, I am in the covenant. His blood covers me. He drank the cup of God's wrath for me. That's the prerequisite of coming to the table. This meal is then an outward expression of who is in and who is out. In the Old Testament, you find many instances of the creation of different covenants. There are many instances where a covenant is made, where some of them aren't even between God and man. They're between different people. And in each case, there's a covenant meal. One of the places where this even sounds kind of awkward is the relationship between Laban and Jacob. So you remember the story, Laban's chasing Jacob because he left in stealth, and he he accosts him and tries to get his household gods back, and then they make a covenant together. They set up a memorial and say, okay, I won't pass over this towards you, and you won't pass over this towards me. There's the covenant, and then they eat a meal together. So they're frenemies, they're actually just enemies, and they've made a promise, then they eat a meal together. And the meal was the sign that the covenant was, in fact, valid. It would be our equivalent today of maybe something like a notary public. Okay, this, this is now a valid covenant because you decided to eat this meal together after having made these promises. And so for us, when we come to the table, we are reenacting and in some ways reinstituting the covenant-cutting ceremonial meal. This is the meal that we eat together before the Lord God saying that this covenant is ratified in the blood of Jesus. There's almost nothing in our culture today that carries this kind of significance. Where we both say that yes, the covenant is in place and then we kind of reenact the making of the covenant. And most of the ones that exist, maybe like a vow renewal ceremony, have some negative connotations, right? Because it's only after maybe things have gone wrong that you would do something like that. For this reason, many theologians for the last 2,000 years of church history have compared the significance of the Lord's Supper with your relationship to Christ to the significance of marital intimacy with your spouse. That the effect, it's not the same thing, but the way it relates is somewhat similar. 
It is an enjoyment of and a restatement of implicitly and physically of your commitments and promises in the relationship. Another analogy might be something like Christmas traditions that you share with your family where to celebrate that tradition indicates that you're in the family. And sometimes maybe a fiancé comes into the picture and, and by allowing that fiancé of one of the kids to participate in that celebration, it kind of extends the right hand of fellowship and essentially says to that person, you're in. So there's a sacredness in the taking of this where it affirms, we are a family and this person is one of us too. It's about the best I can think of as an analogy of the significance of what we do together in the supper. There are a few observations in connection with this about the nature of the Lord's Supper. So we have received this gift. This is a gift. God gives it to us. Jesus gives it to us on the night He was betrayed. But what is it? Sometimes we receive gifts and we don't know exactly what it's about and what it is. Number one, it is not a continuation of the Passover. Rather, it is the celebratory meal of the New Covenant. There are many covenant meals in the Old Testament, like I've already said. Jesus then takes elements out of the Passover and applies them to the making of the New Covenant. The Passover meal was not a covenant-making meal. The point is this. This passage here in 1 Corinthians 11 is the fullest explanation of how a church is supposed to or not supposed to take the Lord's Supper. And it has no Passover overtones at all. We don't improve the quality of our celebratory feasts in the New Covenant by making it more Jewish. That would have even been offensive for the Greeks to do in Corinth. We improve the quality of our feasts by improving our unity and our love for one another. We follow the instructions of the Apostle Paul. We make the meal more unified, equalized, and sacred. Number two, it is not merely, even though I call it this and the way we have it set up now, it is not merely a sacred appetizer. (laughs) Rather, they are the sacred elements bookending a real meal. Look at it again. I, I I haven't got over the significance of this. This is my body, which is for you, the second half of verse 24. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. There weren't a whole lot of restaurants in the first century, so when they came together, they needed to eat. And when they ate together, the indication from this text logistically is that they bookended the enjoyment of a meal together with the bread the breaking of the bread, and a cup, closing it out. Bread before, cup after. That seems to be the pattern. And that shows the sacredness then of the whole meal shared together. It's a preview of the wedding feast. And I would say, if you can remember or imagine the most God-honoring, celebratory, joy-filled wedding reception, that is actually closer to the idea of what the Lord's Supper is supposed to be for the people of God than almost anything else we have. Obviously, it shouldn't be as expensive. We should aim for that same type of note. And that's what we're aiming for in our Good Friday services, if you've been to one of them. 
where we enjoy a full meal together and we bookend it with the breaking of the bread and the cup at the end. It is a sacred feast and we're, we're trying to point that way. And what has happened since and before the Reformation is that the God of convenience has come in and taken over. And in order to make it more easy, we've just boiled it down to the most essential elements. It doesn't invalidate it to boil it down to the most essential elements. But just imagine if you applied convenience to a wedding reception. Wouldn't be very celebratory, wouldn't be very sacred, wouldn't be done up big and beautiful. In the meantime, while we lack the space and logistical flexibility and creativity to make it work on a regular basis like this, to get back to what the gift really is, we must be thankful for what we have in this predominantly memorial-style celebration. And we try as best we can to do it up big and to put things around it. And Celebration Sunday is all about this, to make it sacred, to guard it, and to not just tack it on at the end of a service. In the same way, like if, if you got an opportunity to see a long-lost friend, someone that used to be your best friend, and you, you just got to have an hour or even a 15-minute conversation with them in person, you would take it. But wouldn't you also want to have the opportunity to spend several days with them? Also, we see gospel eschatology, the gospel and eschatology in the Lord's Supper. Verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Very quickly here, the Lord's Supper, as we have already seen, commemorates the Lord Himself. It draws our minds to remember Him, all He said, all He did. We have also seen that the Lord's Supper is a covenantal meal where we reenact and in some ways, recut the covenant. We, we make the covenant again, in a way. We, we, we prom- make the same promises that were made in the first instance of it. To live our lives for Him. But, we see here, that the Lord's Supper is also an act of proclamation. It is a proclamation in two ways. Number one, it proclaims the Lord's death. In the elements themselves, the broken body and the shed blood, we see the gospel itself in the elements. It is a physical portrayal of a spiritual reality. Yes, this has happened. Christ has died. This is why we say this. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. But, it also proclaims something else. It proclaims His death until He comes. So this one who has died, whose death, whose broken body and shed blood is represented in the bread and the cup is also one who is alive, who is coming back. So it points to the very end when He comes to take His bride with Him to the supper that this all points to anyway. So just a few observations about the nature and purpose of the Lord's Supper. Just one point here. Earlier I said that one of the best ways, the the number one apostolically endorsed way for us to strengthen our church, to pursue its health, is to eliminate divisions and factions. But here I want to give you something that is perhaps even more controversial or will be new to your ears. 
Believers celebrating the, the Lord's Supper properly is an act of evangelism. Believers celebrating the Lord's Supper properly is an act of evangelism because as often as you eat this bread and take this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. The Bible never uses the word evangelism in that specific noun form. And when it uses the word that we translate evangelist, it simply means one who proclaims good news, a herald of good news. We are to make disciples by proclaiming the good news. And when we take the supper together, we proclaim the good news together. And there are Old Testament roots of this type of evangelism. Israel was supposed to come together and celebrate God together in such a vibrant and joy-filled way that all the other nations would look on in envy and say, surely there is a God among them. And we, you and I, together, brothers and sisters, in the way that we enjoy our union together with Christ and the way that we celebrate our God together, we have the same opportunity. This is what was happening in the first century. The non-believers call it love feast. Y'all just get together and you, you, even the criticism of the church back then was that they, they, they seemed to be too into this thing of celebrating together. So sure, you can go and argue with people on the street corner about worldview and you can shove a microphone in their face and you can debate with people on social media about apologetics or you can protest different kinds of things. That's all fine, but that is not biblically endorsed evangelism in structure or method. Biblically endorsed evangelism, proclamation of the Lord's death until He comes, is us enjoying the supper, the feast, the sacred covenant feast we have together. There might be a long list of objections to that point. But I would just say that the Lord's method of reaching the nations has never been what we might call pragmatic. If you had been Joshua and you were told, just march around the city, I mean, if you were a general or knew anything about war, how many holes could you poke into that strategy? The way we advance, the way we gain victory, the way we get the gospel out is often counterintuitive. And much of what counts as evangelism or missions or church planning strategy now is more a result of pragmatism and utilitarianism or from guys like Finney and not from the Scriptures. So if we could get our feast right, if we could celebrate together before the Lord in the way that we're supposed to do, what might the effect be? Imagine with me. This is what we're trying to do. Let us return to the old paths and walk the ancient ways. The Lord's Supper proclaims exactly what we want to proclaim to the world. Think about it. We also need to guard the gift. It is a gift. The Lord's Supper is a gift. He gave it to us. So we need to guard the gift of the Lord's Supper. Verses 27 through 30. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and eats, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. This is a New Testament text. I mean, 
There are just a few things. There, there are a lot of things that will get, to get you killed in the, under the Old Covenant. There are just a few things, as far as I know, that will get you killed under the New Covenant. One of them is insincerity, right? Ananias and Sapphira. And the other, as far as I know, is taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Fascinating. The challenge of taking the Lord's Supper, then, this is the challenge and blessing simultaneously. It's more important, it is important that as we approach this text, we remember the context. The context that demands that we do not take this statement of unworthy in an unqualified, expansive way. Because who really is worthy of taking the body and blood of Jesus? If you think you're worthy you probably don't understand what it is we're celebrating or why we need to. The point is, it is not the self that is unworthy. We could safely assume that that is always the case, but there is an unworthy manner, an unworthy manner, a posture or an attitude. That's the issue here. A way of thinking about it. A way of acting in and around it. So we could ask, what is the unworthy manner Paul is warning against? Because he doesn't explicitly connect it for us in the text. What is this unworthy manner? What would be an example of an unworthy manner? I think in context, the most clear way to answer is to say, in a manner that undermines the unity of the church or overly prioritizes, uh, privatizes rather the supper. Because the whole context of this passage keep in mind, is about unity in the body of Christ. He's not talking about different secret sins you may have. He's talking about disregarding brother or sister, humiliating those who have nothing. And then he says, if you take it in an unworthy manner, the context demands, I think, that we take it that way. I've been to a church where we, uh, the pastor, the leadership, decided to do a silent Lord's Prayer, or a Lord's Supper, rather. And everyone just by themselves went and took the elements. And I think that is a closer explanation of this unworthy manner than if you have something going on in your heart that you've been struggling with. Because it privatizes it. It's just me approaching the table, getting it for myself, not regarding anyone else, praying to the Lord, thinking these things all to myself, cloistered in my own soul, taking the elements. It's me and Jesus. We're not discerning the body here means not discerning one another. The unworthy manner is one that disregards one another. That's the point. That is the context. Compare it again to a wedding feast. If you go to a wedding reception and you go through the line and then you just go off somewhere in the parking lot and enjoy your supper by yourself, aren't you disrespecting the bride and the groom and the host of that supper? You're supposed to be there enjoying it in the presence of the thing that you're celebrating. To go to a covenant-making meal and then go off by yourself or to enjoy it by yourself in a way that doesn't acknowledge the group of the people that you're in this covenant with would be an unworthy manner. You're profaning the feast by overly privatizing it. So this is not a come-if-you-dare kind of thing. Right? It's not like Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, right? He chose poorly, right? And it, it turns into a, 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 
basically dies because he uses the wrong kind of cup. Some of the way that we have thought about the Lord's Supper is that way. Well, if I'm not thinking of it rightly, if I'm not doing the right thing, if I haven't, if I haven't cleaned myself up enough to come to the table, then something bad might happen to me. And that is not what this means. I know it's taken that way, and that's probably how you've thought about it at different times in your life. That is not what this means. Because then you could never take it. You're not, you're not familiar enough with your own sins if you think you can clean yourself up enough to come to this table. The point is, if you're not discerning the body in both senses, the body of the Lord Jesus and the body of the Lord Jesus, Jesus takes it personally. Even as you did it unto one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The way we treat others is an indication of what we really think about the body of Jesus Christ. You see this connection? You see how this all comes together? So you can take this cup and bread with as much reverence and pageantry as you want and as mustered up sacredness as you want. But if you do not love and prefer and serve your brothers and sisters or esteem their needs in the feast higher than your own, then you are profaning the body of Christ. This is a challenge and a blessing. There's a challenge in taking the Lord's Supper. It's a hard one to get right, and we as the people of God are out of practice because we severed celebration and sacred. The false god of convenience has robbed us of this most precious gift. The challenge is that as a church, there are things we can do to try and guard its sacredness that we ought to do. We ought to fence the table. We ought to teach about it rightly. But there's only so much we can do as leadership or as organization or in our logistics to guard the sacredness of it. It does ultimately come down to you in your own hearts. Are you considering the body of Christ in both senses as you approach the table? The blessing is this, that in our approach to the Lord's table, we commemorate that sight and faith are the qualifications, not perfection. If you have taken it this way your whole life, then let me liberate you from that way of thinking. This is from a hymn that we'll sing in a few moments. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness He requireth is to feel your need of Him. Coming to the table then, the only requirement is that you come knowing that you need Him and knowing that you need one another, that you're a hungry beggar, knowing that Jesus Christ is the spiritual food that you need. Jesus takes it personally. If you want the physical bread and the physical cup, but for all practical purposes, you have shown that you don't really want His body 
by your treatment of other people or humiliating or dividing from other people in the body of Christ, then this warning is for you. So at the New Covenant Feast, I'll move very quickly here. We read Psalm 75 that the Lord has a cup of wine in His hand well mixed in the context of Psalm 75 is the cup of God's wrath that He will pour out on all the earth. So you will drink this cup one way or the other. But what Jesus has done, as I prayed in my prayer of confession, is that because He drank the cup down to the dregs, for those who trust in Him, it's only a cup of blessing now. So in approaching the supper, in approaching to take the cup, you're saying, yes, I believe that Jesus, I can take that cup from the right hand of the Father and drink it, and there's no wrath in there for me because of what Jesus has done on my behalf. We see this in verses 31 and 32. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. That cup of wrath will be poured out. But we get to take it early and it's only blessing for those who trust in Jesus. So, there's a few differences between the Old Testament feasts and covenant cutting ceremonies and meals and what we take in the Lord's Supper. There's no sacrifice, which would have been the case in Old Testament feasts, right? There was a sacrifice every year. And we don't do that anymore. And it is kept regularly, as often as you do it, and that would not have happened in a covenant meal. That would just happen once. So Jesus takes both, the best out of both, combines it into one, and this is where all of this has been pointing from the beginning. So we feast together before the Lord. Verse 33. So then, brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give you directions when I come. So after all that rebuke and all of that warning, on the surface it sounds so small and out of place for Paul to say simply, wait for one another. But you could substitute that with anything else that is in your heart or in your behavior that cuts against the unity of the body of Christ. You could say, when you come together, love one another. Or when you come together, serve one another. Or when you come together, regard one another. Or when you come together, just spend time with one another. Talk to each other. I think this is why John, in his Gospel, left out the account of the Lord's Supper. Did you realize that? He doesn't mention it at all. But what Jesus does at the same place is to wash the disciples' feet. And that earthiness, that messiness, you know they couldn't sanitize. But that level of service and love is what made the feast proper. He says, wait for one another. Have you ever shown up late to a Thanksgiving meal? When it's all over, the food's going back in the refrigerator, and it's like, oh, oh we, we, we made a plate for you. Here you go. And you sit there alone. It's no longer really the Lord's Supper when we don't do it together. The sacredness is essentially over. I'll skip to the applications here. 
had a lot more to say. But the Lord's Supper is a grand and beautiful and simple vision for the church. There are so many ways to answer this question, but how can we be a more healthy church? Well, one way that sums it all together is how can our feasts, our taking of the Lord's Supper, be more sacred and enjoyable and celebratory together? So a few personal applications or objectives. Number one, repent and be baptized. (laughs) In order to come to the table, you are saying that you're in the covenant. So if you're not in the covenant, get in the covenant. Repent and be baptized. Call upon the name of the Lord. Become a Christian so that then this is for you. Number two, come to the table. Don't let dreaming of fitness prevents you from coming. You're not fit for this table. If you have a worthy manner of approach, understanding what it represents, and you regard the body of Christ in both senses, then this table is for you. And also celebrate. Sometimes the way that in other churches, hopefully not here, but the way that the Lord's Supper is celebrated feels more like a funeral than a celebratory feast. But this is about joy. And we've lost that somehow. And I'm trying to work to get us back together to do that again. And then we have a few applications for our objectives for us together. As your pastor, I'm summoning us to imagination and creativity of how to make this work. I don't have enough of it myself. And most of my imagination and creativity goes into writing the sermons. But thinking of how to get this right and to hit this note right is something that we each need to take part of and figure out how we can do this together better as the people of God. To present, to proclaim to the world in our gathered feast the death of the Lord and that He's coming. I've said in connection to this that if we really tried to do this right, it would change the way we build our buildings. It would change the way we viewed missions and church planting and everything. And then lastly, while we lack the ideal, like while we're still trying to relearn what has been lost, we should celebrate that we have been given this supper. And we must discern the body of Christ together. So I'm going to pray and we'll sing Come Ye Sinners Poor and Needy, the song I referred to, and we're going to sing it a cappella. I want to hear your voices loud as we sing this together. All of these things come together in this invitation to come to the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this great gift that Your Son Jesus gave us on the night when He was betrayed. I ask that as we sing these remaining songs and actually come to the table, that You would help us know what it represents and that we would grasp that we would actually grab onto the things that you've given us. Please help us be more faithful, but but not out of a sense of obligation, but because this is just a great gift. It's a wonderful thing that you've given us. Help us re-appreciate and enjoy your good gifts to us. In Jesus' name.